Hello, everybody. <clears throat> Greetings and salutations. Welcome to episode number 179 in our Bible studies together. Do I have that number right? Yes, I do. Episode number 179. Now, on the last episode, um, Christ left off um, with a warning. Uh, remember, the nation of Israel uh, failed to discern the time in which they lived. Okay? And chapter 13 uh, continues along that narrative. Remember, the chapters that we see in our Bible obviously weren't there originally. They were added later. Uh, so these thoughts continue from one chapter to the next. And where we pick up here in chapter 13, it might be a little bit confusing. Um, there's a couple of uh, catastrophes that had happened uh, recently in the nation of Israel. Uh, historically, we don't know uh, much, if anything, about them really. Okay? So keep that in mind. Then I'll just go ahead and read these first uh, five verses or so, and then we'll go over it a little bit more closely. But it might not make much sense to you as I read it, but that's okay. Okay, here we go. Uh, verse 1 in chapter 13 in the Gospel of Luke. About this time, remember this continues from the, from the last chapter, about this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Okay, we know who Pontius Pilate is, uh, governor of Judea at the time. Uh, verse 2. Do you think those, this is Christ speaking, do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Jesus asked, is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too, unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about those 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I tell you again, that unless you repent, you will perish too. Okay, now what's confusing to us is that we have no idea about these tragedies that occurred. The Tower of Sloan and uh, Pontius Pilate murdering people. Well, the Galileans were coming to Jerusalem, what we do know, uh, to offer sacrifices, which was normal uh, in the nation of Israel at that time. Uh, we do know that the Jews did not like the Galileans, but if they were coming to Jerusalem to offer sacrificing, they were probably uh, Jews who lived in Galilee. Now, what we can gain or glean from this, and, well, uh, to help understand a little bit more, what, what would probably have occurred contextually or culturally at that time is... Uh, the Jews would probably 
say that the death of the Galileans was due to God's disfavor because of their sins. Okay? So that's what Christ is hinting to here. Okay, where he says, do you think those Galileans were were sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Okay, in other words, do you think that's why they died? And Christ is, is answering the question, no, that has nothing to do with it. But the narrative that Christ is continuing here is what? Repentance. He's warning these people again to repent just like he did in the last chapter, okay? And he's warning them again here. Again, he says, you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. This was the predominant message of Christ. It was valid then, and it's, of course, valid today. So Christ is simply using Two examples that would have been culturally relevant then where people had died and they were misattributing their deaths to a punishment from God. Okay, God did not kill those people. They were just tragedies that happened other than the murders, of course, from Pilate. All right. So this is just Christ continuing along in that message. That message is just as valid today. As a matter of fact, earlier today, I I added to the, the Good Friar website, uh, somebody had, had mentioned it, that I had forgotten to put them up there. Well, right under, if you go to goodfriar.com, right under the logo there, you'll see that I added Christ's crucifixion date. April 3rd, A.D. 33. And it was uh, probably around 3 p.m. local Jerusalem time that Christ was crucified. And while I was at it, I added Christ's actual birthday, which was October 4th, 4 B.C. Okay, and we'll get into, you know, <laughs> the paganism behind uh, what Christmas actually means uh, when the time is relevant. Uh, but uh, obviously Christmas has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Uh, his, his death was April 3rd, 4333. That's an easy way to remember it. Okay, 4333. And if you, if you subtract seven years for the tribulation, in other words, if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, if you subtract seven years from 2033, that's not too far away, okay? So if that 2,000-year anniversary of Christ's crucifixion, death, and resurrection means something to the end times, don't know if it does, don't know if it doesn't, okay? There have been some uh, number relevances in Scripture. Uh, I don't know if it's it's relevant or not to 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 the end times or to the rapture. I'm just saying that if you read the signs today, <laughs> we're getting awful, awful close. And that's what Christ is saying here. What Christ was referencing there is that the nation of Israel didn't read the signs that he was their prophesied Messiah. He was right there in front of them, teaching, healing, resurrecting, and they couldn't see it because their hearts were hardened. How many hearts are hardened today 
that people can't read the signs of the times, that we're coming close. What will save the United States of America from the moral degradation that has occurred? Could a human being do it? No. No, he couldn't. Okay? Christ could do it. If Christ chose a prophet to represent him to the people, that prophet could have a chance with Christ's help, obviously. But without Christ, this nation will not continue. A period. All right? All right. So that's what Christ is talking about here, reading the signs of the times, and you must repent and turn to God. All right. Verse 6. Oh, this is another good one. Verse 6. Then Jesus told this story. A man planted a fig tree in his garden and came again and again to see if there was any fruit on it. But he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited three years and there hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taking up space in the garden. The gardener answered, Sir, give it one more chance. Leave it another year, and I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. If we get figs next year, fine. If not, you can cut it down. Now, the one thing that always pops into my mind when I read this is, uh, is, is Abraham talking to God uh, before Sodom and Gomorrah, you know. God had told him that he's going to destroy it. And Abraham's like, hey, what if there are 50 righteous people there? What if there are 20? I forget the numbers, you know. But he finally got it down to a low number, and they just couldn't find any. And God sent the angels in to take Lot out. And the men of the city wanted to rape the angels. How sick is that? And Lot finally came out with his family. And uh, they warned him not to turn around, and Lot's wife didn't listen, and she was turned to a pillar of salt. Okay? And I, I sit here, and here's this, this gardener. Just, just wait. Just wait three more years and see what can happen. Well, what story do you think that Christ is trying to teach here? Here's here's one way we can look at this, okay? The fig tree in this parable is the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is and always has been God's chosen people, okay? Here in this parable, Israel was planted where? In God's vineyard. In other words, his world, okay? Well, God looked around at the nation of Israel to see if there were any good fruit. And he couldn't find any. Look at his Pharisees and his Sadducees and his Sanhedrin, his, his religious leaders. What did the religious leaders do during the ministry of Jesus? Did they acknowledge that he is their prophesied Messiah? No. They tried to find fault with him. Okay? Well, so here, 
Christ's ministry has been going on for right around three years by now, okay? And, and, and there's simply no fruit. And, and the gardener says, let's just wait one more year, see if I can find any. Well, after Christ's three years in ministry, what happened at the beginning of the fourth year of ministry? He was crucified. He was tortured, and he was crucified for us. And he was died and then resurrected. Well, what did God say in this parable that would happen? What did Christ say? If we don't find any figs in the next year, you can cut it down. Well, in that next year, they couldn't find any figs. So what happened? Or what happens in the future if you look at it from the time that Christ was teaching this parable? Probably around late 32, 33 A.D., early 33 A.D., what happened? Well, in the year A.D. 70, Titus, that's Titus Caesar, invades Jerusalem and destroys the temple again. Okay? So here, Christ is warning them in the previous teachings, you must repent from your sins and turn to God. And then he teaches them again with a parable. If God plants you in his world and you don't produce any fruit, what is God going to do with you? He's going to cut you down. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. It's, it's so difficult to turn off the barrage of sin and distraction that we have in this modern world of social media and data dominance. Believe me, I, I made a decent living in data before, well, I won't get into that. And how can you turn off this barrage of distraction? It's very, very difficult. Even a hundred years ago, people didn't have these distractions, so it was much easier to turn to the Word, even if you turn to it for nothing else than a distraction, at least you were turning from the Word. Today, we have many other distractions, so it's much harder to come to God today than it was even a hundred years ago. And that's why I pray that hopefully these teachings are helping you. Okay? You cannot ignore the signs that we have today. You must repent from your sins and turn to God. Verse 10. Oh, here we go. This is another good one. <clears throat> Verse 10. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, he saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. She had been, she had been, that's difficult to say. She had been bent double for 18 years and was unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, 
he called her over and said, Dear woman, you are healed of your sickness. Then he touched her, and instantly she could stand straight. How she praised God. But the leader in charge of the synagogue was indignant that Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath day. There are six days of the week for working, he said to the crowd. Come on those days to be healed, not on the Sabbath. But the Lord replied, You hypocrites, each of you works on the Sabbath day. Don't you untie your ox or your donkey from its stall on the Sabbath and lead it out for water? This dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released even on the Sabbath? This shamed his enemies, but all the people rejoiced at the wonderful things he did. Now, hopefully a few things here are, are obvious. Uh, this woman had been bent double for 18 years. Christ healed her. Okay. The first thing the religious leader does is complain. Okay, now, first of all, why did this religious leader complain? First, if this woman had been suffering for 18 years, no one in any temple had been able to heal her. Therefore, he couldn't heal her. So he was indignant that Christ healed her in front of his people. Okay, the religious leaders of the time despised Christ because he could heal and they couldn't. They despised Christ because large crowds followed him, not only due to his healing abilities, but due to his wisdom and his teaching abilities. Jesus Christ was literally a rock star of that time. And so the religious leader does what? He complains about the law. Well, he was a religionist, okay? If this religious leader was, was in pain, would he have complained if Christ healed him? No. So what does Christ do? Watch the words that he uses here. He says, this dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years, okay? Well, by using the phrase, a daughter of Abraham, Christ is showing that not only is she a Jew, she is a woman of true faith, a daughter of Abraham. That is the phraseology that you would use to put this religious leader in his place. And that's why all of his enemies were shamed. This is just another example, one of many, of how those religious leaders at the time not only couldn't recognize Christ as, as the true Messiah, but they despised him because the people loved him and he could heal through the power of the Spirit. They could not. Okay? 
The people loved him, not them. They loved themselves. They were pious about themselves and their positions. They were supposed to be pious about their love of the Father and doing his work, not work for themselves. Okay? So the religious leaders 2,000 years ago are just as bad as many of them are today. Okay? So Christ called them out on it. And again, he used his favorite word, hypocrite. Verse 18. Then Jesus said, What is the kingdom of God like? How can I illustrate it? It is like a tiny mustard seed that a man planted in a garden. It grows and becomes a tree, and the birds make nests in its branches. So, what is Christ talking about here? Well, he's getting into a couple of of parables of the kingdom, is what they're referred to. Okay, now our first parable about this mustard seed. A mustard seed is is a very, very teeny, teeny, tiny seed. seed, One of the smallest seeds there is. Now, uh, Christ says, a tiny mustard seed that a man planted at a garden, it grows and becomes a tree. Well, this is a parable, so it's a metaphor. Uh, when a mustard seed grows, it does not become a tree. It's, it's more like a shrub, okay? And what Christ is doing here is saying that a mustard seed grows into a tree. He's saying the growth of the kingdom will be abnormal, okay? It will be beyond what we think is normal. And that's really what has happened to uh, the kingdom of Christ since since his uh, his ministry two thousand years ago. It's grown to be huge, okay, much larger than a teeny tiny seed. Now, this part about the birds make nests in its branches. Well, what he's talking about here, you can look at different translations. Another way to interpret this would be birds of prey make nests in, in its branches. Now, birds of prey, and, and, and we may think of it as, uh, as vultures, okay? Uh, they represent symbols of evil here. So the birds of prey that are making nests in the branches of the mustard seed that was planted in God's kingdom are who? Okay? The birds of prey represent symbols of corruption in the Christian faith. And we all know, uh, I'm not going to get into the many stories that, that we've all heard in our lifetimes about how uh, corruption has occurred in the faith of Christ. Okay, Well, Christ knew at that time that his faith would be corrupted, uh, just like the Father knew that his faith would be corrupted. And those who have corrupted faith about the Word, about God, will reap the reward. Okay? So what is Jesus saying here? He says, what is the kingdom of God like? How can I illustrate it? Well, what Christ is talking about here is the beginning of his faith, okay? 
the beginning of faith in the Savior. Okay? And the tiny seed was his ministry. The tiny seed was his disciples, was his apostles. Upon his upcoming in this story, crucifixion, death, and resurrection, he knew that he would come back and release the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit would give his power to his disciples to go out and do his work. So that mustard seed would then begin to grow. And from his little ministry in that 150 or so mile radius around Jerusalem, how far has uh, the Christian faith grown since that time? It has grown to encompass the entire world. So in this parable, where a mustard seed, which normally comes into a, a little shrub, Christ is saying becomes into a large tree. And after that, birds of prey will make nests in its branches. In other words, some portions of it will be corrupt. And that's why I'm teaching the word for what it is. I teach the word chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and simply tell the truth. So it's out there. So anyone can listen to it. Okay? All right. What does he do next? He gives another parable. Verse 20. He also asked, What else is the kingdom of God like? It is like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. Now, this is a small parable that's also often uh, improperly taught. In Scripture, yeast or, or leaven always refers to evil. Okay? So what Christ is doing here, he's saying, you put a little evil into the flour, it permeates to every part of the dough. So how often throughout the history of the Christian faith, has corruption occurred? Has improper teaching occurred? Okay? Corruption, just as Christ says here, permeates every part of the dough. Corruption has permeated all throughout Christian faith. And again, that's why I go back and teach every chapter by chapter, verse by verse, just the word and teach exactly what it says, okay? Because somebody has to do that. As, as big as this world is, as, 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 as vast as data uh, has, has influenced our population, there's not very many people that go out here and do exactly what we do together in every study, and that's just study the Word chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It needs to be done. And that's why I, I pray that you'll help me spread the word that these lessons are out there. And that's what Christ is saying here. He knows that uh, there will be corruption in his faith, and he will deal with that corruption in his own time. Okay? Now, this next one is really important. So pay attention here. Matter of fact, I'm going to get a drink. All right. In verse 22 here, 
Uh, in chapter 13 of Dr. Luke, Christ talks about the narrow door. So listen to this closely. When you go to a church that says, if you say these words, you're guaranteed to be saved. Okay. <laughs> listen to what Jesus Christ says. Okay. Don't listen to man. Listen to, listen to our King of Kings, our Lord of Lords, our personal Lord and Savior. Verse 22, Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he went, always pressing on toward Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? He replied, work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom, for many will try to enter but will fail when the master of the house has locked the door it will be too late you will stand outside knocking and pleading lord open the door for us but he will reply i don't know you or where you come from then you will say but we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets and he will reply, I tell you, I don't know you or where you come from. Get away from me, all you who do evil. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For you will see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you will be thrown out. And people will come from all over the world, from east and west, north and south, to take their places in the kingdom of God. And note this, some who seem least important now will be the greatest then, and some who are the greatest now will be least important then. Now, people always ask, what does this weeping and gnashing of teeth mean? Well, weeping uh, refers to remorse, and gnashing of teeth, uh, you could translate as hatred towards God. Uh, so, what is this talking about? Well, here, uh, Christ is saying the door into his kingdom is narrow. Why? The only people that will be allowed to enter the kingdom of heaven are what? Are who? Those who do what Christ said. Truly repent of their sins and turn towards God. Accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Repentance is not something you can fake, okay? Repentance isn't just an admittance. You don't just admit that you're a sinner. You make clear strides to turn your life around, okay? It isn't saying magic words that open the door like open sesame, that's not how you enter the kingdom of God. Your heart has to be true. 
you, you, you can't fake your faith. Okay. Uh, when Christ is talking about, uh, you know, seeing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob here uh, in the nation of Israel, they believe that their lineage is what got them into the kingdom of God. You are descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Christ is again reminding them that the time for that is past. Okay? A true sacrifice had to be made for their sins, and he is that sacrifice. He is their propitiation. He is our propitiation. He is the atonement for the sins of all mankind. Okay? You accept him as your king of kings, your lord of lords. Okay? Truly repent. Show that your faith is real. Demonstrate that your faith is real by making those changes in your life that you know you need to make. Okay? All right. There's no need to go into that any, any deeper. Uh, we can, theologically, into the uh, Jewish implications of, of what Christ is saying here. But all Christ is making very clear here, again, is that the time is nigh. For them, because he was about to be their true Messiah through his sacrifice, and for us, because our nation and our world has fallen so far away from God that he has to come sometime soon. Okay? 31. At that time, some Pharisees said to him, Get away from here if you want to live. Herod Antipas wants to kill you. <laughs> In here, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I can't help but laugh every time I see Jesus. Just, just watch Jesus here. <laughs> this is so awesome. <laughs> Verse 32. Jesus replied, Go tell that fox I will keep on casting out demons and healing people today and tomorrow and the third day I will accomplish my purpose. Yes, today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must proceed on my way, for it wouldn't do for a prophet to be killed. Uh, excuse me. For it wouldn't do for a prophet of God to be killed, except in Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned, and you will never see me again until you say blessings on the one who comes in the name of of the Lord. Okay, a couple of things here. Um, 
first these Pharisees coming up to Christ and saying, hey, uh, get out of here if you want to live. Herod Antipas wants to kill you. That's in the beginning of what we just read, verse 31. Uh, this seems a little out of character uh, for the Pharisees to be concerned about Christ. So this is conjecture. It's possible that they could have been in cahoots with, with Herod and, uh, you know, wanted to warn Christ, maybe so that they were trying to lure him into Jerusalem. But, but either way, Christ had clearly entered into Herod's uh, territory by this time, getting closer to, uh, to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, one thing here, uh, next in verse 32 where uh, uh, Jesus replied, go tell that fox that I'll keep on casting out demons. A lot of people make a, make a, a big deal of, of the use of the word fox. Um, uh, in the original uh, Koine Greek, uh, that's a feminine fox. It's a she-fox. In other words, Christ is referring to Herod as a she-fox, which is sort of a, a slander against him, which goes, uh, you know, people make a big deal about that. Uh, but hey, Christ is Christ. He can say what he wants. I just thought I'd let you know that. But, but all Christ is doing here is saying, I have to do my mission for the next three days. This time is my time. And where he says it wouldn't do for, for a prophet of God to be killed except in Jerusalem. Jerusalem has a long history, basically a monopoly on killing the prophets of God. But what's beautiful here and a lot of people miss this, is in verse 34, Christ is mourning for his people here. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You know, it's Shakespearean almost. Uh, you know, the city that kills the prophets and stones, God messengers. How often I've wanted to gather your children as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. He is mourning the very people that he knows are going to crucify him. And that's a love beyond what any human being uh, can, can know and experience. And this last part is, is telling. Uh, basically, uh, 35, the last half of verse 35, often referred to as, as verse 35b, uh, and you will never see me again until you say, Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, that is referring to uh, the second advent of Christ. Uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, Christ is saying, you won't see me until I come again. And what he is saying there. Is, is actually a scriptural quote. Oh gosh, what is that psalm? Uh, uh, hold on, let me look it up. Yeah, here it is. That's uh, Psalm 118 and 26. Uh, yeah, Psalm 118, 26. Blessed the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God shining upon us. Take the sacrifice and bind it with cords on the altar 
You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. So Christ is quoting a psalm there, saying, You won't see me again until I come again. And all that while expressing love for those very people who would lead to his crucifixion. That's, uh, that's, 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 that's love, man. All right, that's uh, that's the end of uh, Luke chapter 13. As always, if you want to get a hold of me, feel free to do so. Go to goodfriar.com, click on contact me. I am here for you. And as always, I raise my right hand saying, Heavenly Father, please extend your love, your grace, your healing touch through me with your Holy Spirit, as I lay upon your children the blessing of Numbers 6, 24, 26. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Until next time, God bless.